Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2022, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is roving internet reporter Cam Wilson from Crikey. Thanks for joining us, Cam. Thanks for having me here. This is a real honor considering so many of my my idols, people I've learned a lot from being on the show. To to be among the show's guests, it, it, yeah, I feel blessed. Well, Cam, just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your beat and how you came to find yourself upon it? <laughs> That's a good question. So, I have been a reporter now for actually only, I think, three or four years. And before that, I was a radio producer. And I got into radio producing because I, I kind of always liked journalism in uni, but didn't really know exactly what I want to do. And my then girlfriend, now wife, was like, why aren't you doing that? And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and then I started like working in local radio for the ABC. And I spent pretty much, I, I spent two years doing overnight radio. And then I ended up being a reporter, but I moved across the country and, and was a, a rural reporter in Geraldton, WA, which is uh, kind of five hours north of Perth on the West Coast. It's like the beginning of the end of the earth. And all during that time, I, I was just consuming, inhaling a lot of, I think, like the, the journalism that was happening in the lead up to the Trump presidency and and afterwards and the emergence of the alt-right and in particular BuzzFeed uh, where there was a journalist, Charlie Warzel, who was covering Alex Jones and the alt-right. I learned a lot from him and I just started looking around at Australia and being like, you know, this similar stuff is happening here. You know, these same forces of, you know, white supremacy accelerated by the forces of like online technology are happening here, but no one's really paying attention to it. And so I kind of started to do, you know, just tweet a bit about it and pay attention to this stuff. And that kind of led me to getting a job at BuzzFeed in Australia when it still had its news arm and I was an internet reporter there. And I've kind of been doing it ever since. And I I kind of sum up my beat is, you know, I'm just looking at the way that power works through the internet. What kind of response did you get when you began writing on the subject for BuzzFeed and and then, I guess, now for Crikey? Internet reporting, and I guess I called it the start, like internet culture reporting, uh, has kind of come a long way in terms of acceptance in Australia. I think for a long time it was still, you know, Australian, at least media, and the way that they viewed it was it was – they they – I guess, took a little bit longer to accept it um, compared with places like the US where it really, where, you know, places like BuzzFeed, HuffPo and other outlets really started to, you know, they really defined the beat. Uh, but but since then, it's kind of become a, a incredible, I don't know, like almost like career accelerant, like, you know, not to talk too much about the state of journalism, but like, you know, it's pretty hard for people just to get into it. But because I 
like I, I was essentially like just reading a lot of US journalism and, and copying it and figuring out ways to apply it here um, that allowed me to kind of like have all these like great stories and, um, you know, see things I think early on that helped me, I guess, kind of find a place in Australian media. Like a great example is, and I'm sure we'll get a chance to chat about him later, but like I, I was really paying attention to Craig Kelly early. He uh, was a former Liberal National Party a member, then he became uh, the, the parliamentary leader of the United Australia Party led by uh, Clive Palmer, our own Australian uh, billionaire who loves to dabble in politics. And and I was kind of on him paying attention to his like, intense uh, climate denialism that he was propagating online. And then that transitioned into COVID denialism, anti-vaxxerism. And, and then I think everyone else started to pay a bit more attention to that. So there were stories like that, that just due to the fact that I was probably more attuned and, and had picked up and learned from, you know, the best in the world, I was able to kind of copy it and, and do over here and, and help me find a place for, for that journalism in Australia. The role of social media in elections has been a, a fraught one of late, uh, especially considering things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and <laughs> the impact that had on the 2016 US election. It sort of seemed though that, this election in Australia, I don't know, most of what I saw people talking about in regards to like social media advertisements was, I'm sick of seeing them, but no one was really <laughs> talking about, oh, there's dirty tricks afoot. What was your take on how social media was applied in this election? Yeah, I, I think that it wasn't a particularly innovative election in terms of how they used social media. So, I mean, the big story out of 2019's Australian election was that our Conservative Party, the uh, Liberal National Party Coalition, they pioneered or at least, you know, made a big deal afterwards the use of boomer memes uh, where they were doing, you know, very low, in, um, I guess, like effort memes that were quite blunt, you know, encouraging their message, often intentionally seeming a bit corny or, or rough around the edges to kind of get that engagement. And that was uh, led by this this firm, I think called Tofaguren, who afterwards kind of wrote, uh, you know, uh, wrote about it and, and did some um, uh, like conferences about it. And they talked about it like, I think it was like water on a stone, which was the idea that they were just pumping out these very almost like base emotion memes that were like, uh, you know, labor, uh, like the Labor Party is as a bad economic manager, like very simple stuff, but over and over again. And that kind of, they said, you know, propagated throughout the electorate and actually worked quite well. The Labor Party in their post-mortem had this essentially like moment where they said that they failed the social media election last time. They were unable to like capitalize on it. They were, they were really beaten there. So this time around, they really focused on that. But what we saw was, I wouldn't say much innovation, just kind of more of the same. We saw, um, you know, lots of use of these kind of boomer memes from both sides. Labor did spend a lot of money on, on Facebook ads, or, or at least a lot more than the Liberal Party. The kind of X factor that I was paying attention to was it was the use of short video, you know, that's obviously big on, on TikTok, but also in Instagram reels and elsewhere. You know, that has been a, about around for a while past the last election, but really we see the internet kind of, I guess, evolving towards where social media is really now almost in, in, like primarily about that short video. And both the major parties, I think, really failed to do anything about it. Like, I don't, I don't think they, they quite got it yet. And so, you know, the Labor Party had been doing it for, for a little while, and, but the Liberal Party literally launched their TikTok account like a week or two before the election. And both of them weren't, like, the Labor Party was better at it and some of the politicians were a bit better at it, but none of them really dominated in the way that they would do well on Facebook, for instance. And, and I think really the big impact of TikTok on the election wasn't from the political parties. It wasn't like top-down, you know, politicians or their staff is making content that was, you know, spreading throughout the ecosystem. 
it was actually, you know, viral moments being shared by other users, um, influencers, and I don't mean in professional sense, but just, you know, content creators who were, uh, who were, I guess, you know, uh, remixing memes and kind of encouraging, you know, or always, I guess, conveying ideas about politicians, but not in a kind of concerted way from the political parties. So I guess from that perspective, you know, we didn't really see them, uh, the the major political parties capitalize on that. So it kind of was boring. There was a lot of money um, spent on uh, advertising, particularly by the United Australia Party, who I mentioned before with Clive Party, um, Palmer, and we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure. But it seems like their ads, which were really kind of blunt force, you know, like on YouTube, they would have pre-roll ads that were actually like an hour long, kind of boring uh, video of a meeting that everyone would just skip. They poured a lot of money into it, but it, it but it really didn't seem like it had much effect at all. On the labour side of the equation, Cam, did you notice much social media campaigning by the unions or other, I guess, uh, social movement organisations? Yeah, I did, actually. And, and that's one of the, I think, um, maybe less noticed stories of the online election this time, which was that the unions were by far the biggest spenders on election stuff outside of the major political parties. In Australia, we've had advocacy groups like uh, GetUp, which is a left-wing lobby group, and Advance Australia, which is kind of its its version on the right, and, and they... Uh, have varying levels of success at actually kind of influencing the election, but often they'll they'll get a lot of attention for doing it. But the unions actually poured quite a lot of money into advertising campaigns, and you know their their campaigns seemed very much in lockstep with the Labor Party, which was the Labor Party, which is the opposition, spent m- uh, the majority of their their effort. On, on trying to criticise the existing, now I guess the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, because of some kind of, you know, gaffes that he'd made. Like, for instance, he flew to Hawaii uh, during our bushfire crisis and, you know, he it was perceived he messed up the, the vaccine rollout. They really focused on more than anything else, making him just kind of like a radioactive uh, bad asset for the party, uh, which totally played out. The union campaign really tied into that quite well. Uh, and I don't think it's actually got a lot of notice about how much of a role they played in that. Clive Palmer and the UAP spent over a hundred million dollars in their campaign, and seemingly for for naught or perhaps for one Senate seat in Victoria. Uh, just on the, on their campaign, uh, we were talking just before we started recording. I uh, was uh, bemoaning the fact that some of these minor parties, some of the candidates, were having like. I don't know, beyond gaffes, things that would be career enders <laughs> for for a normal politician, and one of one of the the gaffes of the election campaign was uh, Craig Kelly at one of the freedom rallies that he attended had a neo-Nazi for his security detail. And I couldn't help but notice that they featured that neo-Nazi quite prominently in their advertising. It's the sort of thing (laughs) that anyone else would be like, we need to make sure we never show that footage. Mm. Where do you think that they went wrong with their $100 million of advertising? (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, for perspective for anyone outside of Australia, the the spend by this one party, which is all bankrolled by this uh, billionaire mining magnate, Clive Palmer, far outstripped any of the other uh, political parties, the major political parties, it seemed. You know, they, um, they had these bright yellow billboards everywhere. They had, in, like, they spent 17 or $18 million on YouTube ads over the last, I think, six months to a year. They had heaps of money on, on, on Facebook as well. Uh, television ads. They even, like, you know, paid for, like, a, a full, 
like I think an hour long showing of one of their ads on, you know, close to I think prime time on on one of the major television networks. Um, I think secondary channel. But anyway, so they they, they had a lot of money. Where they went wrong, I think it's, it's a good question. Like. So they originally over the last, about starting a year ago when it started to gear up, they had this very strong anti-vaccine message. And, and that was shared between Clyde Palmer and Craig Kelly, who was that government defector to this, this minor party. And they were, you know, if other, like, you know, if you think about Republicans, maybe in the US when they kind of, you know, talk about vaccine concerns and, and, and probably more of a dog whistle. I mean, this was outright. This was talking about, you know, vaccines being unsafe, sending text messages to all Australians. Australians saying, this is how many people have suffered injuries or deaths after vaccines. Mind you, by the way, these weren't necessarily caused by vaccines, but, you know, it was just a report that, you know, linked, you know, that that, that just was a mandatory report saying what happened after these vaccines. Anyway, so they were sending that out to all Australians without any nuance. And then Australia kind of got over COVID. Like, I mean, I know we're still in the pandemic, but like the lockdowns ended, almost all Australians got vaccinated. The anti-vaccine movements really, really kind of dwindled away to almost nothing from something that was quite vocal with these big rallies that were getting like, you know, tens of thousands of people um, every weekend in some of the capital cities. And so they had to pivot after that. And they pivoted to this kind of like, I I guess, like a freedom message, which was linked to their anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown stuff. But, you know, without the opposition, of actually having any restrictions on our on our real lives, you know, anti any actual real lockdowns anymore. In, in fact, most vaccine mandates are pretty much over as well. That kind of fell flat. They also pivoted to kind of having a, a, a more focus on their economic populist message. They were talking about um, capping home loan interest rates at three percent. It's currently a, a lot less than that, but like even capping it at that would be like. A, it would it would have a lot of consequences. So it's like just you know it's a bit of a pipe dream, but. I think despite all that, you know, these like these ads which promised things that didn't seem possible, I think most people just kind of like didn't believe it. They didn't buy into it. And their their main opposition, the main contrast that they had against the major parties, this anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine stuff, stopped being a salient issue for everyone. So they end up spending a lot of money advertising on an issue that not many people cared about or had already made their minds up. And then when they kind of pivoted, I don't think the message was something that many reasonable people thought was actually achievable from a political party. A lot of people were sort of upset about upon discovering that uh, there's no obligation for political advertising to have any sort of commitment to the truth. Do you think that that, that's uh, something that might need to be changed? I guess equally, could there be some sort of legislative change to limit how sassy statutory authorities can be in responding to electoral (laughs) misinformation? Yeah, so you're alluding to there um, Australia's Electoral Commission, which is an independent government, I guess, institution that uh, governs elections, and they uh, they have a kind of mandate to respond to misinformation about the electoral process. And so they kind of developed this very sassy online presence, at least on Twitter, where they're responding and often directly engaging with like sometimes conspiracy theorists and giving them a bit of chewed as well. I kind of, I think I noticed that early on. And, and I think, you know, I think on the whole it was kind of good. Some people said, well, sometimes you got a bit too sassy and that might turn people off. But I always think that, you know, 
I don't know, not to get too much into this, but, you know, we have this incredible undermining of institutions around the world and often with good reason, you know, like our institutions haven't always given us a lot of reason to trust themselves. But if they could do a better job of making them seem less like, you know, monoliths who are controlling everything we do and more like people who are trying to, you know, do something that helps society, I think that's probably a good thing. So the AEC kind of did that. But yeah, I mean, these ads were just kind of incredible. There were promises that were made. There were, you know, accusations about vaccines on, on such a large scale, like just an, an, like, you know, in, in essentially since the last election, you know, we hadn't seen like spends on advertising on a public issue like that, that were just incredible. As for whether we should be like legislating uh, truth in political advertising, I think that it's kind of, I know it's it's more complicated than it seems because then you've got to figure out who's the arbiter of truth and how that's actually going to work. But that being said, like, you know, I guess it, what ended up happening in this election for this party was that it didn't really do that well. I think it's it's going to pick up probably one Senate seat, potentially maybe. Oh, no, I think it's actually only just kind of one, despite running uh, candidates in all the House of Representatives, so a lower house and and all the upper house as well. So it's a pretty poor r- return on investment for like a near $100 million spend. So you can maybe say, well, you know, people made up their minds by themselves, you know, the marketplace of ideas. But also the, the flip side is, and I think this is the way with a lot of Australia's far right and right wing populist parties is, I think that they are, for the most part, actually held back by the people who are involved with them. Because I think that, you know, the Clive Palmers, who I think in the past says that he writes all the copy for ads himself, or the Pauline Hansons, who has been around now for, I think, 25, 26 years um, in Australian political life, in, in office for a lot of it. I think that these big figures who run these these um, parties that have had some some success are actually quite incompetent. And as a result, they've actually held back the movement or at least um, how the far right has been able to turn their, you know, interest into political, into, in terms of actual, you know, political success and electoral success. And that's probably for, that's probably for the best for all of us. You're listening to 3CR, 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Cam Wilson about the election. In terms of the effects of this enormous propaganda effort, Obviously, the results aren't what uh, Clive would have wanted. But I'm also wondering in terms of the kind of appeal, These a lot of these this material produced by Clive and others, it, it's directed at an older demographic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I seem to remember during the last electoral campaign he engaged in, he tried to recruit some uh, younger uh, fellows to help him with his uh, meme magic. Do you think that there's as much scope or have you detected much I guess, has there been a lot of effort posting on the part of younger people on the far right in in terms of this election? So, my sense for where a lot of the so-called freedom movement and those aligned parties got some of its support was that there was, so there was a kind of older demographic who were these kind of like, Uh, almost like, you know, the kind of curmudgeonally old white dudes who hate being told anything to do and think all government is corrupt. But there's also this, I would say, younger cohort, often of people who are somehow self-employed, whether they're like tradespeople or, you know, small business owners who are often, you know, I think quite self-driven, but also that means that they don't really have access to any of those safety nets because they're not someone who, you know, gets any, like has a leave and stuff like that. They've kind of, because of economic reasons and the way that Australia's workforce has set itself up and the government's tried to, you know, encourage more people to kind of work this way to make themselves into small businesses means that they're 
you know, everything kind of depends on them being able to work. And that was really affected with the lockdowns over the last two years. And so I, I saw, you know, particularly amongst, uh, I think there was like a strong ethnic community um, vibe in this as well, in the kind of freedom movement, who then did end up being part, I think, being the real energy behind the United Australia Party this time, even though it wasn't successful. Those are the people who kind of made up a lot of it, and some of them are quite young. So an example would be, you know, this senator for the United Australia Party. He's not super old, I would say. He's like like 20s, early 30s. His name is Ralph Babette. He is he's Australian. I think he's... Um, yeah, I think he's from Mauritius or he has like, um, you know, uh, like links to that, like his heritage is from there as well. And he uh, re- uh, like got rid of his citizenship in order to run in Australia for that. And he's like, he is a real estate agent who is clearly, you know, self-employed, who is really kind of into the almost the kind of like economic side of this of the United Australia Party. So he was like, you know, really uh, against, va- uh, really against like lockdowns and really against vaccine mandates, not because he's that kind of, you know, wellness side who's like, you know, I'm worried about, you know, putting things into my body or I believe my body's a natural uh, immunity, but because it like, because of the effect that it would have had on, you know, no doubt his life and the lives of people around him. So th- that's the kind of, I guess, youthful side of it that I saw in Australia this time. And so I think that that's kind of like, you know, th- th- there was that kind of difference in the QAnon support from America to the US where it seemed like there was a lot of um, older and um, like Americans were kind of into QAnon as I remember Cam was telling me now, like I think a year ago, whereas Australia, we had that more, that younger group. I feel like that younger group in Australia, in that kind of far right or being, I guess, brought into it, have been brought in through that radicalization, through the, the COVID process, but importantly, like through the effects of, of going through an economic tough time. Uh, you mentioned the undermining of institutions earlier, Cam. We've seen in the States in the you know since the last election, this uh, narrative about stolen elections has just continued to gather steam and this the, the big lie continues to be told. We can also see with the you know other far right and populist right parties around the world sort of drawing from that playbook. We uh, have just had a conservative government fall here in Australia and yet the this, that sort of narrative isn't really being raised here, even though, yeah. e- even as that party uh, members of it, you know, try to drive it further to the right. What have you seen about stolen election narratives in Australia? There was an attempt, or there there, there have been some attempts to to propagate that those claims. But a, a couple of things I think are at play as to why it didn't really take off here. The first thing is, as you mentioned, our conservative government didn't. They didn't resort to that. So there wasn't that um, mainstream support from it for, for, for those kinds of theories. And I, I think that's because even though we, we do have more extreme elements of those parties, a lot of them have fragmented into those minor parties. So an example would be George Christensen, who was a, a Queensland LMP, uh, sorry, Liberal National Party Conservative Government MP. He, he, after, he, he actually resigned or, or, or ended his political term with the government. Uh, but then after deciding and, and saying that he was going to leave politics, but then that was about a year ago. And so he served out the rest of his term. And then towards the end, he actually decided to run for the Paul and Hansen's One Nation Party, probably between us, because um, it, it meant that actually he got this sweet payout because instead of deciding to retire, he was actually technically being turfed out. And in Australia, if you're an MP who gets voted out, you actually get this like uh, cost of living uh, kind of like, you know, sort your life out payment of about $100,000. So, so not, not bad. 
Um, but yeah, so, so back onto the original point, you know, th- there wasn't that mainstream support for it. And I think that's because we're still seeing like, unlike in the US, where we have these more extreme parts that that remain under the Republican Party, the really extreme parts, the George Christensen's, the great Craig Kelly's have gone and actually found places in these minor parties who haven't been, who don't have the kind of same sway. The second thing is that Australians, you know, by and large, I think, you know, <laughs> We, we follow the rules. Like, we, we like to tell ourselves where these, like, you know, larrikins who, who stand up to authority and kind of live lives our own way and, and don't like, you know, the government meddling in what we do. But we also love rules. We love following rules. And I think that's partly why we're so vaccinated. Like, you know, we were just told you should get vaccinated and then we all just did. And the same thing with, like, the Australian Electoral Commission and, and, and our elections. We all, you know, they've done this institution that exists, you know, something that doesn't exist in the US in the same way, has done a good job of putting information out there and also Australians generally are pretty receptive to it. So that kind of cycle has contributed to the the faith in it. Um, so, so yeah, we, we didn't really have it in the same way. And although Clive Palmer, who I mentioned before, just like, you know, made a claim that he had a video that, uh, you know, one of his candidates followed one of the, the the counting officials home and saw that they had ballots at their home. And then he said, the video is with my lawyer and he couldn't produce it. Really, they haven't taken off. And perhaps ironically, in the lead up to the election where these, you know, these freedom movement people, these anti-vaccine campaigners who had this really big, you know, swell of support and then it started to dwindle, the the organizations that have popped up during that time, those groups that were actually pretty organized, they actually were really keen on trying to turn the energy that they had into electoral success. And as a result, they actually spent a lot of time trying to explain to their followers how the Australian electoral process works because, you know, we have uh, preferential voting and that kind of stuff. And so they were trying to teach them, well, here's how we can get the most out of our vote by preferencing all these minor parties rather than the major parties. And I think one of the like side effects of that was that, well, one, they couldn't all the way up to the election say that there was election fraud because if there's a fraudulent election, well, what's the point of actually going to vote? But the second thing was they actually did a pretty good job in some cases of explaining how the electoral system worked, which is sometimes a bit complicated. And as a result, when then, you know, the complicated nature of the election unfolded, well, their followers had some um, understanding, some literacy of the electoral process, which may have unintentionally made them less, I guess, vulnerable to election fraud conspiracy theories. Well done to the freedom movement. Thank you. Yeah. That's a, yeah, they, there was that sort of last-minute scramble to make sure people didn't just write, I don't consent on their ballot paper. <laughs> We've seen this freedom movement sort of grow and shrink and grow again, and uh, they obviously have done quite poorly at this election. It seems like maybe they will get one senator out of it and a completely impotent senator at that. <laughs> What do you think is next for the freedom movement? Well, we're starting to see two things. The the first thing is that some of the figures, as soon as the federal election result came out, started to say, well, we've got our eyes on the Victorian election. Victoria, and specifically Melbourne, was the place where we had the toughest lockdowns in Australia during the pandemic. And that was really the heartland, a lot of the freedom movement, because obviously it came out of adversity to the, the, the harsh restrictions. In the election, the kind of result was that, you know, between some of these freedom movement aligned parties, they they didn't, a lot of them like kind of cannibalized each other's votes. But if you look at them together, you know, they, they had somewhere between 10 
10 and 15% on average of the vote in a lot of these electorates, particularly in these like outer suburban areas who might have had to deal with the worst parts of the lockdowns, but also at the same time be like, well, we're not in the city, so why do we have to have these same lockdowns? Those might be areas that, you know, depending on how the Victorian state election goes later this year, might be able to get up and get some more kind of representation. So, you know... to, to, I guess to to put it bluntly, like you know, they think that they still have a chance, and that there's a contest where the bar's a bit lower that they may be able to get up. The second thing that I noticed is that these groups, you know, they've realised that their support is dwindling. There's not much point in still, you know, being really against the COVID vaccine because. I think, you know, basic psychology says that, you know, people, even if they all kind of begrudgingly got them afterwards, probably aren't going to be crazy about being anti-vaxxer, particularly if they see that everyone who got vaccine is fine. And unless a monkeypox becomes a bigger thing, then it's probably not a big issue in the future. So I've seen them start to kind of pivot, much like the United Australia Party did, two broader issues. One of the one of the groups, Reignite Democracy Australia, which was perhaps um, Australia's most organized and biggest anti-vaccine group, which which spun out of Victoria during their lockdowns in 2020. I've noticed that a few weeks before the election, they decided to pivot really hard to being anti-trans, you know, getting in on these gender cultural wars stuff. So I think for them, you know, the smart ones have realized that, well, I guess, you know, the grift of, of being against vaccines has run out, but but they're, the people who they've created connections with through, you know, getting their email, getting them to follow them on Instagram, getting them on Telegram and hooked in, you know, these people, if they can find another issue that kind of hits those same alarm bells, they might be able to continue their organization and trying to organize a movement, despite the fact that it's very different to what they started for. Just in that context, Cam, it seems to me that if to the extent that these elements are successful and you know can attract some support, that's going to create some problems for the Conservatives in Victoria. How they're going to contend with whether they cultivate these elements or, or try and reject them, um, in, in especially in light of the results of the federal election. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So, look, the the federal government a little bit tried to, I guess, occasionally dog whistle or at least try to bring back in some of these freedom people. And it looks like it didn't work. And, and that kind of makes sense because, I mean, you know, they were like, well, why would we vote for Scott Morrison, the prime minister who oversaw, you know, all the lockdowns, even though he, you know, at times was urging against Victoria's lockdowns. They still kind of blamed him and saw him as a, you know, the insider and responsible for a lot of this stuff. Going forward, I mean, I think that this this kind of block in the electorate is uh, it would be more, much more easily up for grabs by conservative major political parties. But I mean, they kind of have to be they have to be you know clever about it. The Victorian Liberals uh, have been extremely ineffectual. They've really lost their base support from just you know ordinary non cooked people. But in the future, if they are able to both you know build up more of that support while also being able to tap into this now, I think quite like almost like hardened part of the electorate who are just like, you know, off their rockers and really into all of this stuff that might be able to to help them. And that's where I see like going into these gender issues is an area that might be a lot more fruitful because we still see, although there was some attempts during the election, we, we still see that, I, I mean, sorry, I, I have this feeling that there is a vulnerability 
in the Australian psyche and the way that we deal with diversity and, and things that we don't know and, and, and some of our more socially um, conservative uh, streaks that, you know, really taking up the fight on, on, on against trans people by, you know, essentially vilifying them might be somewhere that they could make headway into, you know, people who aren't, don't, you know, aren't necessarily just on Telegram, but might be a little bit more socially conservative and not kind of used to that stuff. And, and doing that might be able to unite these two kinds of groups. We, we saw the Liberal Party sort of attempt to capitalise on some of that sentiment with the pre-selection of Catherine Deves in Warringah, an effort that seemed to be not only for naught, but to have lost them several other seats. <laughs> uh, do you think that that's a lesson that they'll have taken away? Or is it just that, you know, someone on Kiwi Farms was maybe a little too extreme, but they, they might give it <laughs> a go with someone a, a little more subtle? I think that they could learn that they can do this, but they need to be smarter. So Catherine Deves is a was a candidate for a seat that uh, had previously been held by um, Tony Abbott, who was a socially conservative person on the side of our Conservative Party and a former Prime Minister. Um, but the the electorate uh, kind of uh, over the years that he'd held it became a lot more socially progressive, while I still think being quite economically conservative. And so they ended up running this candidate who was actually handpicked by Scott Morrison and and a handful of other people to run in this electorate, who was this, she's a young professional working mum, or all the, um, like in, you'll see me newspapers, they'll, they'll call her very photogenic. She was, you know, she's conventionally attractive and, and, and presented herself quite well, you know, spoke really well. The only thing was that she was a pretty rabid uh, anti-trans like turf. She'd spent years, pretty much since 2020, having an online presence where she had demonized and vilified trans people, saying that you know half of trans men were sex offenders, calling trans children mutilated, calling them a stolen generation, all this awful stuff. And you know, it, like many other turfs, you know, she'd really been sucked into this. You know, she tweeted, I think there were 6,000 archived tweets over two years. So that that's a, I mean, a crazy amount of anything, but like you often do see that. She ended up uh, suffering a swing against her. So she actually did worse than Tony Abbott did, despite him being very unpopular in his seat, which kind of is, is, is interesting because aside from Deves's transphobia, she was, I think, pretty much the picture of who the modern conservative party would like to run in a seat like this. You know, she was, she was quite moderate, except for these kinds of views. The issue was that and and this is kind of like a bit of like journalism you know uh, analysis was that because she had this this archived uh, set of you know thousands and thousands of tweets and also she'd done lots of interviews about about it there was this steady drip 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 led by a news corp uh, a political editor for news.com.au Samantha Maiden on Australia's most popular commercial news website of stories where she was just saying awful things that were just like you know there was no way that you could kind of spin it she like her candidacy when she you know ran it before these tweets came out you know she said she was about about protecting women's sport which is that code for eliminating trans women from women's sport because that's a kind of area that is a kind of wedge point um, even within the uh, kind of acceptance of the uh, lgbt movement because you know a lot of people who accept trans rights australians overwhelmingly accept them are more uneasy about um, trans women in sport because often they don't have a lot of familiarity with it and they kind of you know twig that well because it's a you know there's a biological aspect to it it's a bit different 
But obviously, it wasn't just about that. And although she tried to, you know, I guess pivot her candidacy to being like, no, 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 I'm not like anti-trans people. I'm just worried about women's sport, despite the fact that she showed no other interest in women's sport other than being anti-trans. That pivot didn't really work. And even still, all of this, even with these, you know, like in writing, awful, like abhorrent views that were, you know, indefensible, she still got a pretty good run in a lot of Australian media. You know, she got these puff pieces in in Australia's biggest media company, Nine's Papers. She got, she got like, she was brought on News, which is the second biggest company that's the Rupert Murdoch-owned uh, company in Australia. She got plenty of, of, of softball pieces, appearances on their TV shows as well. If she was a candidate who just was smart enough to not leave this obvious trail of really just disgusting and obviously disgusting views if she was a bit more guarded about her transphobia i think that she could have potentially you know made headway in in an electorate like this because like i said before you know people in the conservative movement in australia have looked at the us have looked at the uk and have realized that in a lot of western societies trans people are and this is a quote from a a, a christian um, political conference in australia they're the wedge in the lgbt uh, lgbt movement they are a part of the movement that they think that they can essentially you know divide uh, i guess like the left but not even just like the left but people who are accepting of diversity in lgbt stuff and, and so i think a candidate like that who was smarter who didn't have that track record could actually be successful andy do you have a yes. final question because i have a final question but if you want to ask one first well, I was trying to formulate a question about the presence of ghosts in the election, and um, it was uh, Cam. Were you particularly spooked by any of these so-called ghost candidates that uh, ran for um, Pauline Hanson? Not really. So, um, no, not personally. I'm very brave. I so so there were so Pauline Hanson, her party, the One Nation Party, seemed intent on running people in every single of the 151 House of Representative seats across Australia. And unfortunately, she didn't have people who were clearly interested who lived in those seats. So what the party did, I think for 149 of them in the end, ended up finding someone to run in them, but often those people were not from the electorate, sometimes weren't even in the state. I think there was like a, 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 a husband and wife couple who both were running not only not in their own state, but in separate states to each other. And, and so I think the kind of premise behind that was that was a bit of a, um, a hacking of the Australian electoral system for two ways. One, it made it seem like there was a greater support for the One Nation Party across Australia because, you know, they were like, because it's quite a national party, you know, it's it's issues, are, you know, not based on one state, like some of the other kind of smaller parties. They were able to harness a lot more um, votes from across the country, which made them look like they had more votes. But the second thing is, if you get above a certain quota, I think it's 4% of primary vote, you get money uh, in in uh, for running in these elections. So by running more candidates, by being able to get some people who, you know, probably polled above 4%, despite not even running there, Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party probably pocketed some, you know, a, a pretty nice payout um, as a result of that. So I think that was the justification behind it. Uh, and as for it didn't didn't really scare me. I think it, like it's not really a, a, a actual a electoral stra- a strategy to kind of win anything. It's it's probably just a money making strategy. I thought you were about to say it didn't really scare me. They weren't real ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, I, th- I remember I seeing one of them. He didn't even know he was running. <laughs> He did. Like, oh, uh, yeah. he, he was running for two parties, wasn't he? Yeah. And yeah. When, when he was getting in trouble for that, he's like, well, no, they told me not to bother. So <laughs> I didn't think they'd put the paperwork in. Cam, just finally, uh, I guess the big story of the election was 
the teal bath and the green slide. <laughs> yeah. uh, leaving aside these puns that are not puns and have no element of a pun within them, what do you uh, account for when you look at uh, the, the rise of the teal independence and that these these green candidates that have gotten up in Queensland? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's kind of two things. So the, the, there were a whole bunch of candidates who were pretty much like close to being conservative figures uh, or like, you know, having conservative ideologies, except for they had a few socially progressive views that just were not aligning. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess socially and, and maybe one or two economically, one or two economic views as well that didn't align with conservative liberal government. And that was, you know, they wanted an integrity um, commission, like to kind of investigate corruption. That's our, our government. Uh, oppose that. And the other um, most obvious thing was that they wanted action on climate change. You know, they were almost, a lot of them, I think, you know, two elections ago might have run for the Liberal Party, but it's kind of like shifted to the right, at least in like, I think the way that it has been unable to, even though there are still kind of like um, more moderate figures of the coalition they've been kind of unable to dictate policy on environment things. And so that has gotten a lot of attention. Anyway, so I think that was part of the reason why they were really successful. And then the Greens were very successful in Queensland. And I think that's partly because they did it like one, they've just been dealing with climate change. You know, they've been dealing with like multiple floods. Like it was flooding a week before the election in Queensland. It didn't get much attention, but they'd also dealt with bushfires as well. I mean, we've all kind of dealt with in Australia, but like it's been horrible there. And there's this like kind of, you know, Queensland is known as Australia's Texas. Australia's Texas, Australia's Florida. Anyway, it's kind of like, it's got a reputation of being kind of conservative. It's, it's massive. It's got a lot of uh, a lot of very conservative areas. But in the city, it's it's quite like socially liberal as well. And so these um, Greens were able to, I think, do a very good ground game. We're able to actually spend a lot of time connecting with people and, and trying to convince them that, you know, better things are possible. We can actually have something more exciting than the Labor Party, which is, yeah, our left centre party. Their, their proposal for, I think, like a 46% uh, carbon emissions rather than the like 75% we need to avoid, you know, uh, impending climate apocalypse. So I think all in all, like we're just generally seeing erosion in trust in the major parties, and I think it'll be. I'm I'm really really fascinated to see, in particular, how Australia's Conservative Party responds in the future. Are they going to copy what happens in the UK, where you know Boris Johnson's government is is, is still very you know conservative, but they but in terms of environmental stuff, they're, they're actually quite. Um, you know, progressive, at least compared to Australia, or are they just going to go, you know, full Republican like in the US and and really try to, you know, go totally against it, go hard line, in which case, what does that actually mean for their uh, future electoral success? I have no idea. Well, Cam, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Cameron Wilson, and people can, of course, find your writing on Crikey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Andy, that is all we've got time for. We will catch you next week. See you then. Have the boys found the leak yet? Molehill set the wheel in motion. Downfall picks up locomotion. Dark to meet a minister, a 
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter.